Hello, and welcome back to another episode with the Nailed It Orthopedic Podcast. Uh, guys, I'm so gracious for to have you guys with us. The numbers are doing great. Uh, we're doing good, good things. I'm thinking we're helping a lot of people, so I'm just glad that you guys keep tuning in. Uh, for those who this may be your first time tuning in with us, I'm Dr. Jay Fitz, or you just call me Jay, and I have with me my little guy. <laughs> little guy. is. <It> uh... <laughs> Dr. Cole here, Dr. Wendell Cole. Some people call me Cody, but some people just call me Cole. All right, and we are some uh, we we're some pretty amazing orthopedic residents, and we're just trying to help you guys out while we help ourselves by learning and teaching this uh, this high yield orthopedic knowledge. Uh, I think today we have uh, another one that's in store for you. That's uh, once again one of the one of the more higher yield. Uh, topics in orthopedics, and this is actually a part two of a two-part series that we've we've been doing on the tibia. Uh, yeah. Again, so you know, pretty much the show, the first show went so well that uh, we we went ahead and did this one too. I mean, we brought them back. We had people request for them, and you know, you, you ask, and we'll we we try to get it get it to you. So here we go. Yeah, we have Dr. Michael Giffins back again. He, he just like Dr. Fitz was just saying. Uh, he did such an excellent job on our last episode talking about tibia plateau fractures. We had to have him back again, and we're talking about tibial shaft fractures, something almost, I assume everybody should see at some point uh, during their residency uh, career many times, likely, because it's a super common fracture. Uh, you know, it's very good to know how to treat these, how to, you know, what are the things to be on the lookout for as far as if you have a proximal tibia fracture versus diaphyseal fracture. And Dr. Giddens did a great job. And if you didn't listen to the last episode on tibial plateau fractures, go ahead and listen to that. But a little bit more about Dr. Giddens. He did his med school at Georgetown University School of Medicine. He completed his residency at Stanford. And he did his fellowship in uh, orthopedic traumatology at Harborview Medical Center, where he is still currently staffed at um, teaching trauma. So without further ado, enjoy our episode on tibia shaft fractures. You are now listening to Nailed It, the orthopedic surgery podcast featuring doctors Jay Fitz and Wendell Cole. Dr. Githens, welcome back to the Nailed It Ortho podcast for round two. We are uh, so glad to have you come back. You know, we're glad that you enjoyed round one enough to come back and do a second episode with us. So, um, Welcome back. But thank you guys for having me back. I was nervous and that I didn't know if I was going to get the invite. So I appreciate <laughs> it very much. And uh, I'm excited to work our way down the tibia today. Yeah, this is, I think this will be a, a, a great episode, just like the last one was a very good episode. Yeah. Um, you know, I've listened to it a couple of times. I know Jay, Jay listened to it a couple of times as well. So yeah, uh, I really saw this. a lot of high yield information for the junior resident or even a more senior uh, you know, orthopedic docs in the shaft. So, hey, I'm glad that we're having this talk and really looking forward to it. Yep. Excellent. So for the residents and probably some attendings, you know, even listening to this, that this is a very common um, injury, common on-call injury that we'll get called about. So I, I think we can go ahead and just jump into the case for the day. Um, at least we'll start off with a case and kind of see where we venture off from there. Uh, so Dr. Gisson, say, you know, you get a call, I don't know if you get calls or if your resident get called and they call you. But anyway, long story short, um, so we get a call that we have a patient. He's a 35-year-old male, 
He was a driver in a motorcycle collision, and we were called and just told that he has a left open segmental tibia shaft fracture. Um, from there, can, how do we, you know, how do we go about assessing these patients? When first, when we see them, what are some things we want to be on the lookout for um, regarding getting a history and doing a physical exam for these patients? So, first of all, you're going to focus on mechanism and the patient as a whole. So this is a high velocity blunt injury. You've got a patient who is likely going to have multiple other injuries. And so, you know, it should, although we're going to talk about tibia shaft fractures and you're going to be tempted to focus on that because you've got a bad segmental injury is to focus first on the patient as a whole, whether you're running the code or somebody else and the ED is running the code, they go through the ATLS protocol first. The orthopedic surgeon's job, once we know that the airway, the brain circulating uh, is controlled, that uh, needs to be put through the standard ATLS protocol. Then it's the orthopedic resident's job to perform a secondary surgery in which you will be placing your hands over every square inch of that patient's body. Uh, to identify any potential injuries. So you're looking for swelling, you're looking for bruising, you're looking for open wounds, deformities, and bony crepitus. Anything that's suspicious gets image. And then you get to focus on the tibial shaft fracture where there's an obvious gross deformity uh, and potential wounds associated with it. In regards to the history, it's important to get as much as you can from the patient if possible, and if not from the patient, friends, family, EMS. You need to understand details about the mechanism, but in this case, we know it's high velocity. Uh, you need to know as much as you can about the patient's social history, whether or not they're a smoker, whether or not they have peripheral vascular disease, whether or not they have diabetes, whether or not they have peripheral neuropathy. All of those things are going to potentially influence your treatment algorithm. Some of those details are going to come in bits and pieces because it's probably going to be a pretty rapid evaluation as a patient. So in your physical examination, you're going to be examining the limb to decide whether or not this is an open fracture or not. If there's any wound in the vicinity of the fracture, you're going to call this an open fracture until proven otherwise. Um, even if it's a poke hole, if it's oozing and you see a little bit of a lipoheme flow from that wound. So a little bit of blood with fat globules mixed in, that is that is pathognomonic for a frac uh, open fracture. Um, you're going to evaluate the patient for uh, any sort of abnormal vascular exam, neurologic exam, and then a close examination of their compartments. Okay. And so, yeah, that's, uh, that's good. Brought up a couple high-yield things, just even on the physical exam, looking for open wounds with this being one of the, you know, highest incidence of open fractures coming from the tibia and also looking for compartment syndrome, which is something you can see a lot with uh, adults with this type of fracture. Um, what Once you get past this, the physical exam portion of things, what, what are the type of imaging that you normally would, would try to get for these injuries as well? So you're going you're to start with that spot film. That's going to make the diagnosis. Then you're going to need images, completion imaging. So that is uh, orthogonal views of the broken bone itself. So an AP and a lateral, the tibia, as well as orthogonal uh, views of the joint above and below. So AP, lateral, knee, and ankle. Um, let me circle back really quickly to 
the compartments and evaluations can be super careful, even with lower energy injuries in the tibia. These patients with uh, sports-related injuries can develop a compartment syndrome. So it's not only in your motorcycle guy, but it's also in the soccer player who has a rotational tibial shaft fracture. Um, so you can be super careful about examining each of those patients with the same due diligence to rule out or diagnose a compartment syndrome. Right. Yeah, I think that's a... Um... That's one of the things that, you know, definitely comes with, you know, having it on your mind and uh, looking for it um, every time that, you know, you see these tibial, uh, tibial shaft fractures, you know, I always have a high level um, of suspicion. And, you know, I once learned that even open injuries can have compartment syndrome. So just because it's open doesn't mean that they can't have compartment syndrome. Um, Absolutely. Those open injuries will violate some portion of some compartment, but you'll likely have entire compartment unviolated and partial compartments intact. So I, I think that your point is very good. Yes, yeah, I, I agree with that because I remember as a medical student, I didn't recognize that, that you can still have a compartment syndrome with an open fracture. But yeah, just because it's open anteriorly, you know, the deep posterior might still be closed or whatnot. So you don't know if all those compartments are actually open. So that's pretty, pretty high yield information there, I think. Now, yes. now how do we go into classifying these injuries? I know there's a couple different classification schemes, but um, what are some of the, the ways that we'll classify, you know, whether open versus closed and um, these tibia shaft fractures? Yeah, so there are classifications that look at the soft tissue condition that's associated with the injury, which are arguably more important than the classification systems that are looking at the skeletal injury itself. Right. So the AOOTA skeletal classification is one in which you can describe a fracture accurately. It's especially useful for research purposes. In the tibia shaft, the skeletal classification is less important when it comes to deciding your treatment plan as compared to other injuries or the body. Uh, what's important though is the soft tissue classification. So there's a turn classification, which for those listening who don't know what I'm talking about, it's spelled T-S-C-H-E-R-N-E classification, that, which looks at both open and closed fractures. It's probably more useful in classifying the underlying soft tissue injury associated with closed fractures. Uh, it's easy for us to kind of get into this little box of open versus closed. And if it's closed, then the soft tissues aren't injured. And if it's open, they are, which is not true at all. So you can have a, the skin closed in a segmental tibia fracture, perhaps in the case that we're talking about, where you've got internal degloving of the entire segments. And maybe there's not bacterial contamination, but there's a huge biologic injury there. So I think the churn classification is very useful for closed fractures in that standpoint. And then most commonly, and I think everybody listening is familiar with the Gustillo and Anderson classification for open fractures. Uh, that's type one through three and three A, B and C, which is really important for um, understanding the degree of soft tissue injury, whether or not there's associated vascular injury or an injury that's gonna require flap coverage. So I think that that um, we probably don't have time to go in depth into those classifications, but if everybody listening isn't familiar with both of those, I think it's, it's really worthwhile because it, particularly the Gustillo and Anderson classification is going to help guide antibiotic management as well as, you know, 
provide an understanding of what the patients are going to need in regards to vascular support or uh, plastic surgery support. The other right. also can't go without mentioning the AOOTA uh, has now come out with a so an open uh, wound or a soft tissue uh, damage classification, which is also worth reading and familiarizing oneself with. Really? Yeah. I haven't heard of the, um, of that last one that you said, I may have to actually go read up on that. Um, yeah, everyone should. It's good. It's come on the heels of, of both of these other classifications that we've talked about. It's very thoughtful. And I think it, you know, it ultimately will help. Uh, I mean, it was designed from a research standpoint, but there's certainly, uh, it's important from a clinical standpoint as well. You know, that's, that's kind of one of the things that I didn't really start to appreciate um, as far as looking at the soft tissues, like, you know, you know, if it's open, it's open, but actually like, you know, looking at how much blistering there is, you know, are there blood blisters, um, what level of bruising there are, um, you know, the actual soft tissue management, you know, now I'm starting to pay more and, you know, more closer attention to it. But, um, you know, definitely that's one of the things that um, to be on the lookout for and to try to pay attention to. Uh, now, not to backtrack, but to backtrack a little, I actually meant to bring this up um, for regarding imaging um, and for our distal, like fourth tibia shaft fractures, do you often get CT scans? I know at my program, um, they'll quote like the ride fast steady um, a lot of times, which, you know, is, is a way of just saying, you know, which fractures you should get uh, CT scans for, you know, has a there's some equation that it has a length of the fracture or like the distance to the platon, the tibial platon. And if it's some, over some certain ratio, they'll get a CT scan. But do you always get CT scans for your um, distal tibia shaft fractures? Yeah. So I think important is mechanism of injury. And even if you can't get that from the patient's mouth, you can deduce it from the fracture pattern. So if you have a tonal distal, distal third or distal quarter tibia shaft fracture, there is a very high likelihood that that patient has an associated non-contiguous posterior malleolar fracture, displaced or not. The problem with not getting a CT scan is you miss that, that non-displaced posterior malfragment often because it's not in plane with a standard lateral ankle view. It's off axis, so you don't see it. And then when you go to nail that fracture, you displace it and then you have a real articular problem. So that, you know, the study that you're quoting is accurate. And I think it really comes into play, particularly with the torsional pattern. So if you have a long oblique pattern in the distal third, you need to get a CT scan or you need to be prepared to do some percutaneous fixation prior to nailing because the likelihood is based on the data and it's been reproduced is more than 50% of the time you're going to have a posterior malfracture. Um, there are other patterns in which I would recommend a CT scan. If it's a really low pattern, the value of a CT scan is not only to assess for articular involvement, but also for planning. We know that nail designs are different and you have, and we can probably get into this a little bit more when we talk about planning for distal fractures and it goes for proximal fractures as well, but you only have so much room to get in so many bolts. And so a CT scan will allow you to actually accurately measure how much bone you have available between the physeal scar and the distal extent of the fracture to, to load those bolts. in. so I think that if you have a very low fracture, 
or if you have a torsional pattern, you need to get a CT scan. Um, and then from the prox proximally, if you have a hemolipoarthrosis that you find on the x-ray, or if you have any suspicion in regards to articular involvement, or if it's a pattern that involves a tibial tubercle, you need to get a CT scan because that's going to affect your plan, whether you're nailing versus plating or putting articular fixation in first and then nailing. Those, those for me are indications for CT scans. Okay. And you know, there, I think this is probably like a area where there is some controversy in orthopedics about this, getting this CT. Like I think I've read some, or at least heard some people say, you know, if it's, if it's so minimal to the point or so minimally displaced or it's so, it's so it's to the point where you can't even see it on the x-ray, is it worth getting, uh, you know, is it worth getting a CT? Uh, but like you mentioned, it just seems like, you know, you could, you could really easily box yourself out if you put down a nail, the posterior male displace. And, you know, pretty much now, I mean, it's, it's, it's going to be hard to reduce that posterior male back, to place with that nail in, you know, in that area. So, yeah, uh, you know, I, I never really understood why some people would say kind of lean towards not getting that CT. Um, Cause I mean, if it displaces, I, I see it kind of just really throwing the whole surgery off. I completely agree with you. And I think that that, that disagreement is dissolving uh, over time here. There's very convincing data and, the studies have been reproduced multiple times to show that again, there's a you know more than half of these patients with a distal third torsional pattern are going to have a posterior malfracture, and I you know I think that the standard of care is becoming at most centers, if not already, is a CT scan for those patterns. And again, it, it big it, it really is based off of the obliquity of that. If you so the, the posterior mal does not break right in line with what would be a perfect Taylor dome overlap lateral. So you're not going to see it. That doesn't mean that it's not displaced. You can have that pattern with a couple millimeters of displacement and still not pick it up on a plain x-ray. Mm -hmm. So I think the argument is just it, to not get a CT scan just is not there in 2020. Yep, I agree. And you already mentioned it, but I'm just saying it again. So when you, when you see that, you get your CT, you can either place screws at the joint to prevent malreduction, uh, you know, or you can clamp it, then rod it, then, then screw it. But you have to account for this, I think, at this point. So moving on to just operative management. Well, actually, first, let's move on to non-operative management. Or is there even a, a role in today's uh, orthopedic care for non-operative management of the tibial? tibial uh, fractures. Yeah, so for there is absolutely a role for non-operative management of tibial shaft fractures in the adult population. Uh, I probably treat one to two a year non-operatively. And in those cases, it's patients who, who, have, who present with a relatively well-aligned or very well-aligned tibial shaft fracture, very little, if any, associated soft tissue injury. Mm -hmm. And the full understanding that non-operative management it requires patient compliance participation and may end up converting to operative management if that fracture displaces. 
the operative management, as you guys know, is not without its downsides. So if we're nailing a tibia, whether no matter what approach we're doing, uh, the patient's going to end up with a risk for anterior knee pain. They're going to end up with a risk for infection. They're going to end up with risk for implant-related complications. So when you have somebody who has a very, let's say, a, a simple transverse pattern with a, a different level, simple fibula fracture, it's well aligned, they have no associated soft tissue injury, and they don't want knee pain, then it's a real discussion to say, we can treat you in a splint followed by a cast followed by a functional brace. It may, you, we may, may need to wedge your cast, just like a pediatric patient. Um, it, we may lose reduction and need to nail it, but it's a totally reasonable thing to discuss with a patient. And in fact, in your boards, if you have a case like that, and you've gone to nailing without having a real discussion with the patient about non-operative treatment, it's going to be a problem. So there's definitely a role for it, but it's, it's quite limited. Do, do you use that, um, that Sarmiento tibia brace, you know, when you transition them or do you normally like, do you normally have them in a long leg cast when you do with the, with the wedges in there or do you have them in a Sarmiento uh, brace? It's, it really is dependent on the patient. Um, in their level of compliance. My typical protocol, because my patients are a little bit less compliant than I'd like them to be, um, is to go for a long leg splint uh, for a week, make sure that their alignment has been maintained, transition them to a long leg cast until week four, once they start to develop some callus, somewhere between four and six. Usually at four, I'll transition them to a PTB cast, mm -hmm. and then I'll let them ride in that for another two to three, maybe four weeks. And then I'll put them into a Sarmiento and let them start walking. That's pretty conservative. If you have a stable pattern, good callus formation and a compliant patient, you can probably get them into a functional brace earlier. But I've also noticed that when I've been more aggressive about that, patients lose, even with a very, very stable transverse pattern, they'll drift, uh, especially a patient who has a, an unfractured or an intact fibula they're going to end up heading towards varus malalignment, and then you're wedging their cast every single week. So it's something that requires more follow-up and more work on the back end than nailing for sure. But it does save them the potential complications right. of, the, of operative intervention. And that, and that PTB cast, that's that patella um, tendon bearing cast? Or yes. That, yeah. Right. Yeah. Okay. Um, Jay, anything else you want to ask about non-op? No. Move on to the, no, I uh, think we can get into the meat now. We can get into the meat here. And, <laughs> what everybody's been waiting for. <laughs> yeah, and talk about operative management of the uh, tibia fractures. And actually, I was hoping that we could break this down into, you know, different thirds of the, of the tibia. Uh, and hopefully, we can start off, we can probably start off with proximal tibia uh, fractures. And then we can go into like if it's diaphyseal with the it within the isthmus. Uh, I think we since we already talked about pelons, I don't know. There's there's some overlap there with distal distal third, but we can kind of mention that. And also, if we have enough time, maybe even get into open fractures as well. I think that sounds perfect. Okay, so let's say we have this patient that comes in MVC uh, has this proximal third. Um, proximal third tibia shaft fracture. What are you what are you thinking at this point as far as how we want to position this patient? 
what type of approach we want to take for this patient. And, and I mean, are we nailing? Are we, are we going to nail for sure? So kind of what are some of your thoughts on that? So my first thought is let's get a CT scan. Again, I mentioned this, but let's understand whether or not there's simple articular involvement or tubercle involvement because that's going to alter the plan. I'd still am okay with nailing some of those, but you have to know that the tubercle is fixable and the joint is fixable with a, a pretty simple algorithm. And if not, then that changes the plan entirely and you're looking more at sort of a plateau treatment plus a plus plating or a plate nail combo, but we won't go there. So CT scanning, let's say there's a simple articular split. The tubercle is not involved. It's a proximal quarter fracture. Um, from, yeah, you guys know this, the proximal quarter uh, behaves very poorly with nailing because of the deforming forces and the mismatch between the nail diameter and the canal diameter at that level. Right. So there are still a lot of surgeons who will say, you know what, technically it's easier to plate these fractures. I can restore the anatomic axis of the tibia and the mechanical axis of the lower extremity easier and maintain it that way with a list plate or, or what have you as compared to trying to nail this. So I'm going to do it. There, are, there is a good randomized controlled trial done by the metric consortium looking at plating versus nailing for proximal quarter tibia fractures. And the, the sort of the big summary of that is there's no difference. So the takeaway is as a surgeon, if you're technically better at plating, plate it. If you're technically better at nailing, nail it. Um, we talk about the theoretical advantage of the, uh, the theoretical mechanical advantage of a nail versus a plate for long bone patterns. And I think it does come into play with certain proximal tibia fractures, um, particularly comminuted patterns. And so I, and in my, uh, hands, I would tend to try to nail a proximal quarter or proximal third over a plate for that reason. Um, I position the patient supine. They've got a bump underneath the ipsilateral hip and a ramp underneath the leg. That's planning for a semi-extended nailing, which has a huge advantage over your stand hyperflexed nailing for a proximal quarter or proximal third, because that gets us right back to the deforming forces. So you've got your extensor mechanism inserting on the tibial tubercle. You've got the PEZ. Uh, inserting on the anterior face of the tibia. So the classic deformity for a proximal quarter or proximal third fracture is what? Oh, we're going into uh, valgus and uh, apex anterior. Right. So if you put that patient over to a hyperflex position with a third fracture over a triangle, what's going to happen in the proximal segment? It's going to just, it's going to accentuate your, your uh, apex anterior to big time. So for me, and it, this has been written up, and I think probably for most trauma surgeons, a semi-extended nailing has a advantage over a standard nailing for a proximal third. So they're going to be in that position. Uh, and there's multiple ways to, to do semi-extended nailing. So people will also sort of assume that semi-extended means retropatellar, which it doesn't that, you know, there is controversy still about going through the knee joint or the patellofemoral joint for your instrumentation and your nailing. There are also extra articular ways to access that starting point. 
which would be a, a, a medial or a lateral extra parapatellar approach. So it really depends on, or it, um, the whole thing hinges on the position of the leg. So I'm going to go semi extended for sure for that pattern. And then, yeah, that's, uh, I'm glad you mentioned that. Cause actually that's one of the, I swear, at least for the first two years of residency, I, um, I, I just equated super patellar nailing with semi extended position and infrapatellar or, you know, patella splitting with a hyperflex or with a flex um, positioning. So I'm glad that you broke it, that you're breaking it down into semi extended versus flex. And then from there, you know, there's, you, you're not necessarily going super patellar approach in a semi extended position that there are other, um, other approaches that you can take, which I think you're just about to touch on. Yeah, exactly. And I think that's important. So it's position of the leg, whether it's hyperflex or semi-extended, and then the approach to access the start point. And uh, Tornetta has a really nice paper summarizing that. Eric Kubiak wrote another nice paper sort of looking at that. So if the readers want to, or the listeners want to get into that, I think those are a couple of good papers to look at. Um, But leg in the semi-extended position, each one of those approaches for semi-extended nailing has its upsides and its downsides. Mm-hmm. Um, and the important, one of the important steps in determining what you're going to do is what is the patellofemoral mobility? Do they have pre-existing arthritis or knee stiffness? Is that going to affect your ability to get the protective cannula through the patellofemoral joint? Uh, do they have a mobile enough patella that you can do a lateral parapatellar approach and stay out of the joint. So you need to examine the patient's knee joint once they're on the table and be a little bit flexible in regards to what the particular approach you're going to use if you're going to be semi-extended. But I do think, I think the main point here is for proximal quarters, a semi-extended position has a huge advantage in uh, neutralizing the deforming force from the extensor mechanism. It also simplifies imaging throughout the procedure. And another thing that, uh, you know, is very high yield, you get a lot of questions on this. Can you explain where would you put your, you know, your polar versus blocking screws for this type of fracture? Yeah. So, I mean, that comes directly into the deforming or the expected deformity, which on the AP view is going to be valgus and on lateral view is going to be apex anterior. So there are some surgeons who actually place blocking screws before they even put the guide wire in planning for those. Right. So the, the, to keep it full, the blocking screws are going to go, the blocking screws are supposed to narrow the canal and direct the nail. So they're going to go on the concave side of your deformity. So if you have valgus, that's going to sort of be a medial cortex replacing screw. It's going to go on the medial side, direct the nail. And then uh, for your apex anterior deformity, it's going to go again in the concavity of the deformity. So it's going to go behind the nail. Um, and there are some surgeons who will just put them in right away. There are others who will, uh, reduce this fracture, whether that's manipulation, percutaneous clamping, opening it and clamping it still in that situation. Sometimes the nail will go down and cause a deformity. And then the block the nail comes out, blocking screw goes in, directs nail, maintains. Um, I think to backtrack, though, the most important thing is the starting site. 
And that goes for a, for a supra isthmic fracture, like a proximal third or proximal quarter. That's, that is a, like the single most important thing that you should be focusing on. And it's important even for diaphyseal fractures too, especially if you've got a, if you've got a butterfly fragment or something like that, where the isthmus isn't totally intact, but the starting site is going to dictate whether or not this proximal quarter fracture you know, is, is going to be okay for you or if it's going to be a total disaster. And if you have a wrong starting site, it's going to be a total disaster and it's going to be really hard to correct even with blocking screws and or supplemental plate fixation. So I'll say you, in order to get a good starting site, you mm -hmm. have to understand what a good AP and a good lateral view is. So if you get it, what looks like that starting site, we all know that it's supposed to be on the medial aspect of the lateral tibial spine on the AP. But if you're rotated 10 degrees in one way or the other, your starting site's going to be way off, like a centimeter off. Um, so you need an AP where the proximal, the lateral aspect of the proximal tibial cortex is bisecting the fibular head. That's important. If you've got a proximal tib-fib dislocation, good luck because you're also <laughs> semi-extended and the patella is pushed in one direction or the other. So that's where that becomes really challenging. Don't rely on the patella being centered over the femur because you've got a jig either right patella through the knee or you're pushing the patella one, patella one way or the other. So look at the proximal tib-fib joint. If there's any question, image the other knee beforehand. But that's how you get a good starting point. You know you've got a good AP. You use that, you get a perfect, like perfect starting site on the AP. You make sure that you're right on the crest on the lateral with a good femoral condylar overlap. That's going to be 80% of the work in these proximal quarter fractures is the start site, start site, start site. Trajectory matters. That can be adjusted as you put the entry reamer in. Um, but that should be your primary thought before you even start thinking about blocking screws. Okay. So just to reiterate, we're saying, you know, starting point is key. You know, our starting point, first, we should get good radiographs. The fibula um, should be bisected by the lateral edge of the tibia. So that's how you know you have a good AP. And then our starting point is so going to be just uh, medial to the lateral tibia spine. And on the lateral, we want perfect overlap of the condyles. And then our starting point is going to be um, kind of... Um, not posterior, but to the tibial tubercle, like right on that, right on the edge of the uh, uh, that corner of that tibia. And we can, again, this is, you do this in a semi-extended position. Um, and then the route that we can take to insert the nail or get our starting point can either be super patellar or it can be, you know, otherwise it can be medial, um, medial parapatellar or et cetera. Yeah. Okay, perfect. Okay. And go ahead, Jay. Yeah, and even, you know, advantages of semi-standard positioning, imaging, and uh, ease of reduction for these types of fractures. So I think we hit on some of the high points on, you know, semi-standard proximal femur. I do have one because, you know, I have one more thing because this is actually a paper that my one of my attendants put out uh, just saying how this could help with your reduction. Do you ever put a, uh, what is the, the best term? Do you ever put a small like unicortical plate to assist you with the reduction on these fractures? 
Yes, uh, very commonly. So my for a proximal fracture is uh, variable. Very rarely do I say closed nailing alone is going to work for this and I'm just going to go for it. Um, it. I typically, if it's a clampable pattern, I'll try percutaneous clamps. I, I have a very low threshold for going to a limited open reduction, whether that's anterolateral or posteromedial. And when you do that, you can clamp the fracture or you can put a plate on. The proximal metaphysis has so much uh, sort of space available as compared to where the nail path is. You can actually even put a bicortical plate on, but you'll find the, the more fractures that you do, uh, more proximal quarter fractures that you do, even if you put a plate on, uh, for the reduction and then go to take it off, you'll, you'll see the fracture actually rebound into a valgus or a, a propervatum position. So I, I have no qualms about making a biologically friendly approach, getting an anatomic reduction, putting on what is thought of as a provisional plate, but then actually leaving it on to prevent early loss of reduction because the deforming forces on the proximal tibia are so strong that oftentimes they'll overpower your nail either immediately when the plate comes off or within the first couple of weeks. So I think it's a really good adjunctive technique. The important thing is you need to be thoughtful of your approach and be thoughtful of the biology because again, a nail is, 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 uh, relative stability, we're looking for endochondral ossification, which relies very heavily on the biology, the fracture environment. And then you say, wait, you're opening it and putting a plate on it. But yes, I am to do that for the reduction, but you have to maintain the fracture hematoma, maintain the periosteum, do minimal stripping and put that plate on in a way that it still allows the fracture, fracture to wiggle and heal by secondary bone healing. Yeah. We went through, so I think we went through like a lot of high yield, proximal tibia, uh, you know, content there. So just to add the last a couple more things. So we, we mentioned about the, the blocking screws and we all know the blocking screws go where you don't want your nail to go. So um, you, you're putting it lateral and posterior, yeah, lateral and posterior. So that's a high yield question that we see all the time. Uh, this provisional plate, that unicortical plate that you can, can either keep in or uh, take out to help, help assist with the um, trying to pretty much help with the reduction and fight these deformant forces. Um, yeah, I think that was good. Uh, Cody, anything else you think we should kind of throw out there for approximal two? No, I think that was um, I think that was an excellent review for treating um, at least a, the intermedullary nailing for proximal tibia fractures. Um, I think we can, I think we can move on to diaphyseal fractures. Yeah. And out and, there hearing this, right. It's not, it make you would think that it's going to be so much easier out there <laughs> dealing with the proximal tibia. Is. <laughs> yeah. When you have a nice uh, isthmus there to kind of help guide you down to where you need to go. Yeah. I mean, it really, in light of our discussion is so much easier. If you have an intact isthmus and you've got a fracture at the isthmic level, then you're in good shape. Um, you, it becomes a little bit trickier when you've got an isthmic fracture, but there's an associated butterfly 
or there's a bit of comminution and then it's easy to be lulled into a sense of security but those can go badly as well and really what you have to watch out for is eccentric reaming so i think the gold standard for a closed uh, mid-diaphyseal tibia fracture is still closed nailing but you still have to pay attention to where your guide wire and your reamers go in relationship to that Hey, uh, surgeons will get in trouble with eccentric reaming. So if you've got a butterfly, the guide wire is going to tend towards the deficient cortex. It's going to sit right on it. And then as you ream past that multiple times, it's going to thin that cortex out. And when you put the nail in, you're going to get a translational and maybe an angular deformity. So being cognizant of these ismic fractures that are not perfectly transverse, but have some deficient cortex and maybe using a push-pass reaming technique so that you don't eccentrically ream will, will be a great solution. Um, and, and I think closed nailing is still the standard for you know, the vast majority of your diapsial tibia fractures. Now, do you still position these in a semi-extended position, or, or do, you, do you have these in a flex position? I, I do. I've gone to semi-extended for all tibial nails with the exception of exchange nailing for infection uh, or other reasons. Um, I think that the imaging, you know, imaging is just so much easier if you're just coming AP lateral without having to move the leg. And I think that really matters in regards to maintaining the reduction as well. So for me, any acute tibia is being nailed in a semi-extended position. And then again, what approach do you uh, do you typically use then? It's, it's variable. I think I'm probably 50-50 on a retropatellar approach as compared to a lateral extra-articular parapatellar approach. Um, I've had a handful of very high-level athletes where the idea of going through the patellofemoral joint is, um, you know, the, the, the data on how much damage occurs is is questionable, but in those particular patients, if you have a digit or a professional athlete, I think avoiding the knee joint is important. If it's a technically challenging fracture, I think a lateral extra par- extra articular parapatellar approach is a nice balance in that you don't violate the knee joint, but you can still nail in a semi-extended position. So you get the benefits of both worlds. The downside is if they don't have a really mobile patella, you may end up with effectively what is uh, um, a lateral release. And so you have to be really careful about how you repair their lateral retinaculum so that you don't over or under tension the lateral side of the, the, their uh, retinaculum. Um, so for most people, I'll go retro, uh, retro patellar. If I have a high level athlete, I'll go lateral extra, uh, articular. Um, and if they don't have a very mobile or if they have a really tight arthritic, uh, uh, patellofemoral joint, I'll consider, um, uh, going lateral extra articular. I very rarely will go medial. I think if you need to, for some reason, you know, if somebody's got really severely tight knee joint and you need to flip their patella or really push it out of the way, you can go medial. And I think uh, Tornetta described that as like a medial arthrotomy in nailing, which is another option. But I don't, I don't, I think that it's very rare to use that approach. 
I think that's so good that we're we're talking about a tibial shaft, but you still have to think about your approach and how it affects the knee. Um, there's a, a lot to go into that that you mentioned earlier, the just the mobility of the patella. If there's a lot of patella for more arthritis, these things you got to have in mind before even starting your case. And since we're talking about semi-extended, I know there's some literature that's out there that actually says um, there is less knee pain associated with the semi-extended approach. I think it's probably comparing it to like uh, the flexion, the deep flexion approaches that we sometimes do. And just, you know, there's, huh. I'm pretty sure certain there's, that's, that may be a, a bit controversial, you know, but <laughs> there is, there is, there is data out there that shows that, you know, less knee pain associated with the semi-extended, but, you know. Now yeah, no, you're right. There is. Um, and I, I think that really we probably need a, a much higher powered study to detect and probably better outcome tools to detect uh, you know, any really clinically relevant difference. I think that both, you know, you got to counsel your patient. There's a risk for knee pain, no matter what we use, but you're right in that there does seem to be a trend towards less knee pain with, uh, with a semi-extended approaches compared to a standard hyperflexed uh, uh, approach to nailing. Absolutely. And then, and then when you're uh, when you're getting reductions, you know when you're reducing when you're getting a reduction of your diaphyseal, I guess your diaphyseal um, tibia fracture. Any reduction tips? Do you just make percutaneous incisions and use a Weber clamp to get your reduction, or how do you typically get this reduction before you put your guy wide down and start reaming? I, so I think that what you just said is is really important, which is understanding that you need to have a good reduction before you start reaming, whether you're not, whether you're in the proximal quarter, the distal mm -hmm. quarter or the diaphysis, you need to be able to manage and maintain a reduction before you start nailing. So I think, I think your last point is very good in that whether or not you're in a metaphyseal segment or a diaphysis segment, you need to have a good reduction before you start reaming. And you need to know how you're going to manage that reduction. In the diaphysis, that may just be closed manipulation and, and carefully watching your reamers to avoid eccentric reaming. Mm -hmm. But sometimes it's not. And in order to understand the times when it's not, we need to circle back to or revisit what are the risk factors for a patient with a diaphyseal tibia fracture nailed needing a reoperation. And so if you're going to leave the operating room with somebody with one of those risk factors, then you need to employ one of these other strategies. So if you've, if you're going to end up with less than 50% cortical contact, whether that's significant translation or angulation, if you're going to end up with cortical contact, but significant angulation, um, those are things where you say, all right, even though I've got a pretty simple diaphyseal fracture, if I leave it this way, patient's not going to do well and they're going to need a reoperation. So in that setting, I'll say my algorithm is attempt percutaneous realignment, whether that's with, and that, and that is heavily dependent on the fracture pattern. And we're talking about a pattern where there is some main fragment to fragment, potential main fragment to fragment contact, um, would be percutaneous clamping. If that doesn't work, 
then the next option, you can put in percutaneous chance pins to control the proximal and the distal segment. That doesn't work. You can make a biologically friendly open approach. Again, either anterolateral or posteromedial, never on the medial face of the tibia, and then clamp or provisionally plate that and nail. But I think what's important is understanding that the tibia doesn't accept a lot of deformity and it doesn't accept a lack of cortical contact. It's hard to get it to heal. It needs an appropriate mechanical and biological environment. If you're all for biology and none for mechanics, you're going to have a problem. If you're all for mechanics and none for biology, you're going to have a problem. So as a surgeon, it's case by case to say, all right, this, I've got two degrees off and I'm okay with that. I've got eight degrees off and I'm not okay with that. So the eight degrees off may get an anterolateral approach and a clamp and then a zero degrees off a nail, a biologically friendly mini open approach, and they're going to do better. So I think, I think, I think that's the way to think about, you know, how am I going to escalate my surgical invasiveness for a diaphyseal tibia fracture? Yep. And just like you, you're saying, I, I appreciate at my institution, uh, there's a pretty low threshold to go ahead and open this up and start using, you know, some percutaneous measures or trying to get this reduction instead of struggling for hours and hours trying to do it closed when you can make a some small, you know, minimally invasive sometimes incisions and, and get get the reduction just perfect and save yourself a whole lot of time, get the patient off the, the table and extubate it and, uh, you know, lower, lower the risk of infection costs and, uh, and just bad complications for the patient overall. So, um, but I think that was great for the, the shaft. And I was hoping that we could get into the distal third um, femur fractures at this point and kind of your sound like you're probably still doing semi-extended um, approaches for those. And I guess just kind of what all you kind of think about when you, when you go into this, uh, into those cases. So just like the proximal tibia, the distal tibia, you're going to have problem with stability mm-hmm. because there's a mix, a mismatch between the nail diameter and the medullary canal diameter. So I am first of all thinking about alignment and secondarily thinking about stability. The fibula comes into play big time in my practice, and I think a lot of uh, traumatologists practice in regards to both alignment and stability. So let's throw out the idea that there's an associated unstable ankle injury. Let's just say that there is a distal third tibia with an associated fibula fracture. Those will reproducibly fail into valgus. If you have an intact lateral column, you're going to have a much lower risk of falling into valgus. The other, so, so I think about the fibula first. I think about fixing the fibula to restore lateral column stability, prevent valgus failure, and then I have a relatively simple tibia to nail. Uh, the other time I think about the fibula is if I have a very comminuted distal third or distal quarter fracture and a relatively simple fibula fracture, the, a comminuted tibia fracture is really hard in regards to length uh, and alignment and particularly rotational alignment. And I think that recently somebody wrote like, we're interested in malrotating femurs, but guess what? We malrotate tibias a lot. Um, 
a simple fibula fracture is a roadmap to length alignment and rotation to a degree for a tibia. So for a distal third or quarter tibia with a simple fibula, I'll go to the fibula first. So that's a, one of the first things I think about is what is the fibular pattern? Where is it? And is it going to help me either from a stability or a reduction standpoint? Um, and then for the tibia fracture itself, I mentioned this earlier, but I think knowing your nail and knowing how much bone you have to work with in regards to your, your interlock placement is very important. You're going to want polyaxial fixation um, and three bolts at a minimum for an infraismic fracture. If you can't get that, you need to think about how you're going to augment the stability, whether or not that's uh, plating the fibula, adding blocking screws. So we talked about blocking screws and I misspoke. I think you guys corrected me appropriately for the, the top side. There it goes on the lateral cortex, not the medial. But um, that's for correcting deformity. The other thing that a blocking screw is going to do is it's going to provide stability. And Credic, when he wrote his original papers on polar screws, showed that there is significant stability inferred by a blocking screw, even if it's not for guiding the nail's trajectory. So if you can only get two bolts, add blocking screws on either side of the nail. And in some cases, you can add a provisional plate uh, to augment stability. When I have a distal third or quarter tibia fracture, those are that's kind of my algorithm in regards to how I think about it. And again, I have a lower threshold to make a biologically friendly approach to ensure that I have a high quality reduction. Because if you leave the operating room with a small malreduction, it's going to turn into a larger one at two and four and six and eight weeks after. Okay. And so, like you said, again, down there in the distal third of the shaft, you, the metaphysis is wide. Sometimes you have to use the, the blocking on polar screws to kind of help uh, while you're reaming or help with your nail. Uh, this part that you mentioned about the fibula, I think is so important um, because I don't know, I, I, I've never really seen a lot of questions asking about this directly, but this is something that uh, correlates uh, a lot when you're actually in the OR and it makes sense. And so you mentioned you will fix the fibula to help with length, alignment and rotation, especially in your comminuted fractures. And also, oh, and also it helps with stability. Again, with, uh, and that's even more helpful probably for your common unit fractures, helps with overall stability. And I think we, you kind of mentioned, but I think we're kind of staying away with the, it, it can also stabilize unstable ankle injuries too. So, um, and so just since we're on that and something that I saw before and I, I thought it was pretty interesting. What, what's, you know, knowing that the fibula can help you with length alignment and rotation, what about if the fibula is a transverse fracture? So there's not a, a clear area that it keys in to let you know 100% that you have the rotation and uh, the rotation and alignment just right. How do you kind of tackle that? Well, so it depends on why I'm fixing the fibula. So if it's going to be helpful from a length standpoint. So, uh, the in regards to rotation you can have a fibula fixed perfectly and still manage to malrotate a tibia if you don't fix that fibula you can malrotate the tibia a whole lot more if, if that makes sense so in the in a transverse pattern 
with a fibula and I want it to guide my rotation, I'll make a open approach because you're right, radiographically, it's hard to, but we'll have it open with two centimeters above and two centimeters below, even if you're going to nail the intramedullary screw based on the osteology of the fibula with a sharp posterior border, you'll be able to get it spot on from a rotational standpoint. And then that will help guide uh, and, and at least get you in the ballpark for your tibial rotation. If you don't fix it, you can you can rotate the leg however you want. Um, so I think in those cases where I want to know that the rotation's right, I'll make a mini open approach. I will line it up with two serrated bone holding forceps and I will fix it properly. And then I know that I've got the rotation of the fibula right. And I still have the opportunity to malrotate the tibia, but it's a whole lot less than if I didn't fix it. Now, now, if you have, you know, this distal, say we have our distal um, comminuted tibial shaft fracture with one of the fracture lines that extends into the joint, but at the profond, um, it's it's anatomically it's reduced, so it's not it's not um, displaced at all. In those cases, you know, would you just put um, two interfragmentary lag screws or so at the joint and then just go in the going with the nail um, itself or how do you treat those? Yes, I think that uh, screw fi- lag screw fixation for the articular surface first, prioritizing that, number one, because the joint needs to be right, and number two, you don't want to displace it, and then nailing the metadiaphyseal or metaphyseal fracture second, I think is an awesome treatment for those particular patterns. And there, there are, you know, your pilon variants where you have a very simple joint injury, even if it's three fracture lines, like your classic pilon with a chaput of Volkman and a medial fragment without that central impaction, that you can do a mini anterolateral approach, squeeze those fracture lines, lag screws across, and then nail the comminuted metaphyseal portion of it. So I think that, you know, nailing for people talk about quote extreme nailing is a very good treatment and from a mechanical standpoint and biologic standpoint for distal metaphyseal fractures even if there's joint involvement and i think that there are uh, several good case series um to sort of back that statement up but uh, i'll do that all the time i think it's a really good treatment strategy whether those screws go in perk or you say there needs to be a little bit of a joint reduction I'm going to do a sort of a formal mini pilon approach, get it right, and then nail the, the metaphyseal component of it. It's a good strategy. Absolutely, I'm loving this. This is like we're we're getting into some some good some good topics. That's uh, past just some of the the stuff that you'll see on ortho bullets. This is this oh, is yeah. uh, this is good. Can't wait so, to go back on trauma. <laughs> exactly. There we go. Guys, um, I'm here. Trauma, there we go. Trauma, trauma, trauma. Trauma, trauma, trauma. All right. And lastly, I guess, can we can we talk about how you manage the open tibia uh, fractures? Uh, since it's something that's that's you see pretty commonly in a in a busy level one trauma center. Yeah, kind of like our case today, the uh, our open segmental. Yeah, so so super common. Uh, the soft tissue envelope around tibia is not friendly. So um, the first, as we discussed, is rule out a compartment syndrome. And if there's any question 
And if it's open, take the patient for a compartment release. They get early antibodies and they hit the door like any fracture and they get their tetanus dated. After that, the management of the soft tissue will break whether or not the patient has complications that may end up with an amputation. And with a tibia fracture, that's more likely to be a through knee or an above knee than a transtibial, which we all know is much worse from uh, from an outcome standpoint than than anything else. So that so when you have an open tibia fracture, you need to take it super seriously mm-hmm. from that standpoint. The debridement is really important. So most, not most of the time, oftentimes this is going to be a medial face wound, one centimeter, two centimeter, poke hole, whatever. I would implore every person listening to this to never extend a medial face wound. Like debridement is important. And and what we can talk about the, the mangled tibia or the segmental bone loss, but I think more importantly is talking about this like poke hole to several centimeter open medial face wound, which is very complicated, like common. If you do a Z extension of that up along the medial face or a T extension or whatever, the likelihood that that wound breaks down is so much higher than if you do a separate anterolateral approach, expose the fracture site through that do a formal debridement through that. This really? is not this is not anecdotal. This has been published. Um, it's the practice at our institution and I think increasingly at other institutions. But the problem with extending the medial face wounds should be obvious. There's no, nothing between the skin and the bone. If you do an anterolateral approach, just like you talk about for you know, anything else on the tibia, if there's a wound problem, it gets skin grafted. So most of these fractures can be adequately debrided through a counter incision and should be done. Um, that's my, that, that's like my soapbox point on, <laughs> on medial open tibia shaft fractures. And so I would really encourage everybody to think about biologically friendly sort of anterolateral approach and not mess with a medial face skin wound. Um, again, and then and then it's your oh sorry. I'm sorry I interrupted you, but I was just trying Indeed. to understand that too. It, we're pretty much saying these are the smaller wounds. This this is a one centimeter wound. You're saying it's not yeah. worth enlarging that wound. You might as well just go from the anterior lateral and, and wash out from there. So not saying it's already, you know, I guess if it's already a large 10 centimeter, 10 centimeter wound, then, you know, you just work from there, but this is. Yeah. Okay. I, totally. So if, so, and I think that, that if somebody was like, what's your hard and fast criteria, if you can't deliver the bone ends through the medial wound for an adequate debridement, which is basically going to be a three a, I mean, I guess it's going to be somewhere between a two and a three A. If you can't deliver the bone ends through the medial wound, make an anterolateral counter incision and do your bony debridement through that. Does that make sense? Yeah. No, that makes that makes excellent sense. Uh, I got to find that paper that you're talking about and, and, and read up on it. Yeah, I think 
at risk of misquoting this, it did, it came, I think it's a, I think Scalaro was one of the authors on it. Um, but anyways, I think it, you know, it's like the medial face of the tibia does not take a joke. It's already yeah. taken a big hit with the trauma and you do not need to do any more surgical trauma. So the, the biggest thing that's going to save the patient from an infection is a thorough debridement needs to be done with you know, a, a knife and, and curettes and we got to clean everything from a s very systematic standpoint, skin, subcutaneous tissue, fascia, muscle, bone, but still think about biology as you do it and avoid the medial face of the tibia. I think that's the most important thing that I can say in regards to open tibia shaft fractures. And then the question is, what do you do with a segmental defect? And you guys could probably do an entire podcast on tibia shaft <laughs> segmental yeah. defects. Right. And in, in general, um, for, I guess I have two questions. One, this is his first one. Um, in general, for these open, you know, open tibia shaft fractures, what kind of a construct do you typically, if you're X-fixing these, you know, you're taking for irrigation debridement and possible X-fix. When you X-fix these, do you typically put it uh, in a delta frame or do you put, you know, pins on the, on just the shaft of the, of the tibia? Um, kind of how do you do that? So I'm going to continue to challenge some dogma here and question as to what the role of an X-fix in an open tibia shaft fracture is. And I think it's limited at this point. One is if there's a vascular injury and the patient's an extremis and he and can't tolerate anything else, in which case I think an X-fix is appropriate. Two is if you've got an extremely calm or extremely contaminated wound bed and you cannot do a thorough debridement or you expect significant progressive myonecrosis with contamination, mm -hmm. then I think an X-fix is appropriate. Otherwise, I think early nailing, and there's plenty of data to support in open fractures with a thorough debridement is a, is a very reasonable treatment. One thing I will say is that a provisional plate, which serves as an internal X-fix, works uh, probably better than an X-fix itself in controlling uh, some of these uh, per patterns where you decide you need an X-fix. Let's say, for example, vascular injury, patient not stable to go through tibial nailing. You can put an, a, a plate on um, probably as fast as an X-fix and it provides greater stability. The whole goal of an X-fix is stability and it doesn't do a good job for long bones, whether that's the femur or the tibia. Are you keeping that plate in or is that pretty much provisional in those cases? Uh, so in the, in the tibial shaft, that's provisional. And mm -hmm. the, a shaft plates need to come off. We talked about leaving them in in the proximal and distal metaphyseal segments, and I think that's fine from a relative stability standpoint, but plates in the diaphysis should come off particularly if you're doing it for an internal X-fix in, in a contaminated environment, then it, it should probably come off. But this, the, the stability that you get from that, that plating technique is better than if you X-fix. If you do have to X-fix, it depends on the location of the fracture pattern. If it's a truly a diaphyseal pattern, two pins above, two pins below, with a uh, bar on each and a bar-to-bar -bar connector at the level of the fracture works reasonably well, um, but it doesn't control all planes. So I think that in those patients, I will also splint them. 
Um, the whole goal of an X fix is to protect the soft, you know, restore length alignment rotation, but primarily protect the soft tissues. You can put a, a four pin X fix on a long bone and there's still a lot of wiggle. So just because it's X fix doesn't mean that it's doing its job. You got to be really thoughtful case to case in regards to why am I doing this and is what I just did actually doing what I intended it to do. And so I think if I X fix a femur or a tibia shaft, it gets a splint for sure. And I'll try to do internal X fix with a plate as compared to an X fix if it, it you know, unless the wound is just absolutely filthy and uh, I can't spend hours debriding it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. We, I thought that was a, a good point there. Cause you know, we had a patient um, that came in at some point that was in a bad accident and they had a, a very commuted segmental open like tibia shaft fracture that the bone, like this patient was like sitting in mud for a couple of minutes. So it was like, it was severely contaminated. And you know, the thought process was at least when I was looking at it, I was like, man, I don't know if we're, gonna, if we're really going to be able to X fix this. Cause no really nowhere that you can really put a pin in this. But then um, our tenant, we did that provisional plate, um, kind of what you were just talking about, um, just to allow the soft tissues to rest. And, you know, this guy went back for, this uh, person went back for a couple of irrigation debridements. Um, but, yeah, that was my first time actually seeing that provisional um, plate being used for an opium tibia fracture. And then later on getting converted to an intramedullary device. Yeah, you know, I think I think really it comes down to patient specific treatment and what the goals of what you know what they bring to the table and what your goals are for that specific operation. It's it's detrimental to think X fix damage control. The poorly done X fix does more damage than it does to control the damage. So you know, I I, I think that you really need to just be thoughtful. If it's the right thing, do it. If you have a better solution, do that, you know, and I think that X fixing long bones is really hard and it doesn't do what it does for us for, for articular injuries, articular injuries, you know, respond to ligamentotaxis, diaphyseal injuries that doesn't work. So anyways, I I think, I think that's a good, you know, really good thing to talk about is whether or not there's really a, a, a mainstream role for X fixing 3A open long bones. And I think that there's increasing volume of data to show that there really, you know, any absence of specific uh, circumstances, not really much of a role. Yeah. I think this, um, I think this episode is going to be a, well, it was a great episode. I think it's going to be one of the highly, um, highly listened to episodes, a great overview, you know, went in detail, a uh, good amount of things on different ways to treat tibia shaft fractures. You know, we talked about proximal, we talked about diaphyseal or isthmus fractures, talked about um, distal fractures, what to do with open fractures, uh, positioning, X fixing versus, you know, just splinting. Um, Dr. Gibbon, this is a, a really great um, episode. We really appreciate you coming on again and talking about tibia shaft fractures. Um, actually, one thing uh, that, that we'll just quickly touch on that I was almost about to uh, not say anything on is post-op management. Do you typically have your patient's weight bearing is tolerated if there's not an intra-articular fragment or um, is there anything in particular that you do post-operatively? Great question, and thank you for bringing that up. I, it's heavily dependent on the fracture pattern. So there's a randomized controlled trial looking at weight bearing 
after tibial shaft fractures. And based on this study, it is safe to weight bear your OTA B, A and B type diaphyseal fractures. So if you have main fragment to main fragment loading, whether or not that's transverse or there's a butterfly, then it's safe to weight bear them as tolerated and encouraged because that's the mechanical environment that the tibia needs. If it's a segmentally comminuted fracture of the diaphysis, the study didn't look at that. And I think that you're going to get different answers from different surgeons. So I don't have, and there will not be a board question or answer related to that. I think that um, most for a segmentally comminuted pattern, I and most folks will probably wait six weeks until you get some callus formation. As you mentioned, if there's involvement, uh, depending on what it is, I think uh, flat foot weight bearing for six weeks, unless it's a true articular injury with impaction, then three months is appropriate. But the tibial shaft needs to be loaded in order to heal. So the sooner that you can get them to do that, the better. There it yeah. is. Yeah, there it is. I think this is awesome. Uh, we we making our way all the way through the uh, the tibia and. I don't know. Eventually, we're gonna make some shows up on uh, infection and non-union. I think those are some other high yield, um, high yield topics that come about kind of often with this type of fracture. Um, so yeah, tibias. You see them often in residency, and they're probably gonna give you the, some of the hardest challenges as well. Uh, so again, thank you, Dr. Githens, for your time and, and and coming back out again to give us another amazing episode. Uh, and again, what's a way that all of our listeners can reach out to you if they, if they would like to? Yeah, no, I'm happy to to chat with folks professionally. My email is mfg28 at uw.edu. And uh, if folks are more inclined to use social media, then it's orthopedic underscore trauma on Instagram. There we go. All right. Well, thank you all for listening and tune in next time. Thank you all for listening to our part two episode with Dr. Githens this time on tibia shaft fractures. We hope you guys enjoyed it just as much as we enjoyed making this episode. If this is your first time listening to this podcast, please hit the subscribe button. And just so you know, you can go to nailedithortho.com for show notes, including some x-rays and and all the notes that we took and uh, that we have for this podcast. And... And three ands, tell a friend or a colleague. Okay, we go. Hope you enjoyed it. Please go and leave a review. Until next time.